everybody. Hi. <laughs> We're going to get started here. Um, welcome. My name is Nina Mamakunian. I'm the uh, librarian for literature and theater and dance here at the Geisel Library. I'm also the curator for our Archive for New Poetry in Special Collections. Um, as part of the Archive for New Poetry, we do record these readings. So we will have a brief Q&A afterwards, uh, and we'll be walking around with microphones. And so please use the microphones to ask your questions so that we can pick you up for the recording. Um, other announcements is that the restroom is uh, out that back door. You'll see it right when you exit that back door. And if you do need to leave early, please use that back door so it's less disruptive to the reading. All right, thank you. Thanks, Nina. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, so excited you could be here with us. We're so excited to have Manuel Paul Lopez here reading for us. Um, I want to uh, uh, quickly shout out that um, Manuel Paul Lopez has uh, books for sale here, um, both the mo more recent book, These Days of Candy, and then his previous book, the book that I was first familiar with and got to see him read from uh, a few years back in Los Angeles, uh, the book The Yearning, which won a really prestigious prize from Notre Dame Press. And so both those books are for sale, so definitely you know, uh, stop by the table after the reading, say hello, and, and buy a book, please. Um, this evening we uh, uh, have uh, two uh, wonderful graduate students, Carlito Beal and Townsend Motilla, uh, going to be introducing uh, Manuel Paul Lopez. Um, so I'll turn it over to them in a second. Really quickly, though, I want to – oh, cell phones. Uh, remind you, please, to turn off your devices. I'm going to do it um, with you right now. Great. Thank you so much. And then also looking ahead – uh, we have one uh, uh, one more event in this quarter uh, for the new writing series. Marilyn Chin, the poet Marilyn Chin, uh, will be reading for us. Uh, uh, Marilyn has a, a new and selected uh, uh, coming out uh, on, on Norton, uh, a book of poems coming out, and uh, we'll be celebrating that with Marilyn. And again, that reading is November 28th. And it's going to be right here in the Seuss Room uh, of Geisel Library. So please come back. Please join us again for that reading. Okay. Carlito and Townsend. Hello, all. So today's featured writer is no stranger to the Golden State. Born and raised in El Centro, California, Manuel Paul Lopez received degrees from our own University of California, San Diego, as well as San Francisco State University. He currently lives in San Diego with his wife and teaches at San Diego City College. His prolific work has been supported by the San Diego Foundation Creative Catalyst Fund, as well as, as his fellowship with Canto Mundo. Lopez has appeared in Bilingual Review, Denver Quarterly, Hanging Loose, and Puerto de Sol, among others. Lopez's own publications include Death of a Mexican and Other Poems, which was awarded the Dorothy Brunsman Poetry Prize, 1984, a chapbook which Lopez called a Chicano-style tribute to Joe Brainard, The Yearning Feed, which was awarded the 2013 Ernest Sandine Prize for Poetry, and Reclaiming Our Stories, Narratives of Identity Resilience and Empowerment, which he helped co-edit. As Brennan said, his latest publication from Naomi Press, These Days of Candy, celebrates its one-year anniversary this month. Manuel Lopez's debut book of poetry, Death of Mexican and Other Poems, contains a voice molded by the sincerity regarding artistic influence and the anxiety of being othered within an already 
marginalized community. The book invites us into a burying Chicano-style Blake vision being had by a speaker who cannot speak Spanish during the Latin explosion of the 1990s. However, the prose narratives of this book are urban legends and questionable anecdotes told by distant cousins, crude uncles, and opinionated grandmothers. The dark humor that hangs between these intimate interactions makes us question, who is the poet? A voice, the subject, the writer, a legend, or maybe even your crazy cousin. From Gigi Allen to Pablo Neruda, our speaker celebrates his influence in his lyrical verses proudly like a fresh tattoo against a world that questions the practicality of poetics, the importance of art, and the quality of your accent. If death, if death of a Mexican is an experiment in voice and self, his following book, The Yearning Feed, is an exercise in expanding the space of the global cultural imaginary. The book's covers are not printed with rigid maps to follow the author's childhood misadventures within the Imperial Valley or to illustrate how the Mexico-United States border splits the two nations, land, water, and consciousness. What Lopez gives his readers is a narrative space drenched in experience and memories. The world Lopez reflects cannot be easily deciphered by a cartographer, for he has dropped us in the in-between, the in-between of the United States and Mexico, of memory and fiction, of land and water, and of artists and witness. Lopez again introduces us to family members with wild anecdotes, but this time the social circle has expanded to include friends and acquaintances. These relationships crisscross as we are taught how to survive the heat of the valley, the process of how to su support your methane-addicted uh, methane friend, and how a grandmother designates cruel nicknames to schoolchildren. The yearning feed highlights the poetics and politics of the bodies of water that separate the consciences of the U.S. and Mexico. Lopez juxtaposes Yelp reviews about lime-flavored water from a Mexican restaurant, online articles on the cruelties of the Border Patrol, and the headlines depicting border crossers floating in the most polluted rivers in North America in order to invoke the sincere, sincere brutality of our age so the reader can recognize and re reconnect their disassociation from the reality of this border. Lopez experiments with formatting the verses in a diverse styles on the page and in the repetitions of titles throughout the book to remind the reader of the in-betweenness of where we began and this in-betweenness from where we take our own lead. So as we mentioned before, this month marks the one-year anniversary of Lopez's most recent book, These Days of Candy, a mixed genre work with a full orchestra of characters to tantalize the mind, like the Sawfish Twins, Mousepad Becky, The Saddened Man, and Las Luciernagas. This book reckons with the existence of a Muppet god and the difficulty of finding oneself in the puzzle of a great big world, but does so while manipulating the text of the book into a whimsical landscape for the reader to get lost in. In an interview with Rob McLennan, Lopez said, in college, poetry bit me hard, and I haven't left its side since, which is very lucky for all of us here today. In that same interview, he was asked what the role of the writer should be, and he responded, I think writers should produce the most honest work that they are capable of writing at any given moment. And nothing feels more honest than the moment of these days of candy when he writes, you're a real imagination. That's what your grandmother always said, a real imagination, mijito. Now keep stenographing your big heart away because the world needs a change with beauty in mind. Without further ado, please welcome Manuel Paulo Lopez. Thank you. 
The world might be motherfucking cuckoo, but my homeboy Nestor's not, that's for sure. Nestor's just the neighborhood peludo inching in the dark like some mole in time. My boy Nestor's smart as fuck and his science might very well explain why there's a jungle in my kitchen where a three-headed monster shakes ass-deep bamboo trees behind my refrigerator just to frighten me. This morning, an insincere warthog stole a jar of Nutella from my snack drawer and thought it funny to leave a note that read, Your rent's due, motherfucker. <laughs> I saw a wolverine nursing a fox last week while I reached for a glass of almond milk so beautifully tender in the twilight until a slick-mouthed lemur mimicked my end-of-the-month complaints about the rising water bill with pinche helium in its mouth. This kitchen is a shit-talking ostrich provoking the goofy-eyed vulture perched high up to double down and dine on my life insurance policy. This kitchen is a blue-haired stoner smoking herb with a marsupial intent on pocketing all of my cutlery. I spend most mornings spraying mosquito repellent all over my trembling body before an hour wasted clearing acatillo bushes with a machete just to deliver my beloved panecito to the toaster. Damn those scandalous-ass hyenas with those beach ball laughs. What kind of forest is this, Nestor? Nestor says I have no imagination and that I'd die before I'd even lived if I'm not careful with what I have, whatever the fuck that means. If only Nestor could devise a rocket ship with all that science, he thinks. I'd buy admission tickets for me and the me's I might leave behind to lift off my kitchen countertop and soar someplace I've never truly been, divorced of the down-here dull on gravity me. Oh, hey, to kick and paw wildly in the sun. Overcoming a forest in my kitchen is insurmountable. Nestor taught me that word. I believe it isn't as insurmountable as previously thought to actually inhabit the moon, he said, but I would never, ever do that. You know why? Why, Nestor, why? I asked. It's because my father already sees enough of that astronomical darkness in me, and I like that. All sciency and shit, but Chicano goth at the same time, con esa corazón sota, Nestor possesses beneath his pecho like a little, little ashtray that tries hard, hard, hard to pacify a night of burning cities in its grasp. But for real, Nestor needs to break up with books from time to time. Break up with those motherfuckers, I say. Too many in your head and they become battery acid for the brain. I swear I hear pages flipping inside his dome while he's standing on the front porch saying nothing, perhaps daydreaming about the great oceanic innervations of the intergalactic psyche, perhaps, as he likes to say while using his favorite word, perhaps. Of course, I can only assume, perhaps. But one thing's for sure, he's always still, javelin straight, an obelisk on the street corner of eternity, and I doubt he'll ever put down those damn books, not even for one hot-ass minute. But that joint I borrowed about growing mushroom gardens and kitchen cabinets, wow, and now my visions have declared sovereignty. Oh, Nestor's bear traps around my broiler to protect the steaks he's been manning, but I'm vegetarian. That meets for the dying lion, he says, though I've never seen it, nor do I ever want to. The thought of an accidental encounter makes me shiver. We must always think about the dying lion and the light, he said, and when I look at Nestor's eyes as he reports this shit, I can tell he means it. And this is what hurts me for reasons I cannot openly, openly express in a poem written from the jungle of my days. Nestor visits me most late afternoons just to set meat on the kitchen floor for a lion that might never roar anymore. This nonsense Nestor's grown in my kitchen fills me with great anguish, though I must admit the air I breathe these days embodies glorious pine needle, glorious honey, glorious and wild lavender that just startles me into living.
I exist to revere this plight. Nestor's dream, nightmare meet for the willing. Thank you. Thank you so much for that introduction. Thank you, Brandon. Um, it's really, really nice to be here tonight. Uh, it's very special, you know, um, to be here at the library uh, to share some work. Um, as was mentioned, it is a year since the book came out uh, uh, through Noemi Press. And it was, what's also really cool is that it was part of the, um, the Acrylica series, which is named after the seminal collection by Juan Felipe Herrera, this, uh, that collection that came out in the 80s. Um, and it was here at UCSD where I came across his poetry for the first time um, and, and was completely floored by it and just was amazed by the, the, the gymnastics of, of the text and, and just the feeling I got from, from reading it. And it's just a very weird thing that these many years, many years later, you know, to, to be a part of a series that recognizes that book. So that's really cool. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, you know, I know that there's a lot of other places we could be. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read a couple more of this Nestor series, this reoccurring character um, that uh, tends to show up. It's from a new manuscript. Poem. The sky spelled out my name in scratches and now Nestor's pissed at me. Nestor's teeth fell out. I said, Nestor, your teeth fell out, and now Nestor's pissed at me. We fell into an outrageously long silence until I pointed, reminding Nestor, hey, Nestor, look at the sky. The sky spelled out my name in colorful scratches, and now Nestor's pissed at me. Nestor said, looks like some tempestuous child left a handful of Crayolas to melt on the hood of a jaguar. A jaguar, huh? Why a jaguar? A jaguar was the first mate that came to mind, and now Nestor's pissed at me. Nestor said, if you must know, my teeth have been falling out for years. Say what? And now Nestor's pissed at me. My teeth began to loosen when I was in the womb, falling like rain. When I least expected it, they fell. They fell like rain. Have you ever felt your teeth fall like rain? Have you ever felt your mouth rain? In my dreams, I suppose. And now Nestor's pissed at me. Sometimes they shatter like old wine jugs across the sidewalk of my childhood stomp and gag. Whenever I stumble back from the liquor store, he laughed. I laughed too, and now Nestor's pissed at me. I said, the sky is white. This blue is so light. And what is that green square humming in the corner near the faded moon? And now Nestor's pissed at me. Nestor is a spectacular ventriloquist. Sometimes he makes my mind speak. Sometimes he becomes a church and a whole singing congregation. Sometimes he makes the great big oak converse with the telephone wire near the liquor store. Sometimes he makes the clouds chat. Nestor's got that big ear, that precise ear, that quetzal ear, that band leader ear, that mellifluous box trap, that mellified honeymaker, that oracle orifice, that audio dynamite. Once Nestor transformed a patch of sky into the green room of a mythical comedy club in heaven. Everyone there, Pryor, Pryor Carlin, Cantinflas, Bruce, Red Fox, and, but wait, what about the women, I asked, and now Nestor's. Oh, egregious omission. But Nestor apologized, not to me exactly, but at the edge of the cliff to someone or something out there. And then he returned and had me laughing thereafter, that is, until his mouth rained. And once again, we were left to stand on a thin horizon without umbrellas where teeth chipped our shoulder blades. And a strange, diminishing man stood to our side and sang of lost loves and failed aeration and gone booze. Then the clouds began to die. 
and the scratches and the itches and the melted Crayolas on the hood of a Jaguar left by some tempestuous child seemed like an ordinary thing strewn across an ordinary sky, which meant it was time to return to work and to hear the punch of time cards again and to clack back to the sound of digitalization, which really meant belts, cogs, factory whistles and smokestacks called by another name. While all the while, Nestor's teeth continued to plink, plink, plank along the Pacific coastline like a magnificent holiday of sound, like an ice truck filling up an ocean with its hulky, pelagic grammar for all of us to drink from. The looks. There are looks in the fences. They stink of menace and ironwork. I remember when the looks called me names, glue, crossbones, fly trap, days I walked home from school dreaming of levity and impenetrable door jams. But the looks are conniving baseball bats. They swing for the head. In high school, everything was a drug that looked at me. My teachers did drugs. Our parent association did drugs. I couldn't inherit the Monday-Friday logic. I wanted to tear my heart out. When I felt drunk on Nestor's shadow and felt it wince beneath my back, Nestor said, there are few good people in the world. Nestor said, the only difference between a truth and a lie is that the lie hasn't happened yet. Please disaffect me. I wouldn't mind a disappearing act if only to reemerge on the moon. That look enjoying me when it really should have said, I'm an FBI looking in there. I'm a CIA looking in there. I'm a two-way polonium surveillance window looking in there. I'm a furious cop fink looking in there. There is a nowhere goon telling me these days. I hear it licking SIM cards from a weather balloon. That auto blaster, that suction Mac every day, is he everything is hazy. The looks are real. I used to be a mighty stockyard, stockyard hero, but now my forklift ungassed. We heed the timesheet imaginary, the reckless bottle. I tremble from my nursery sco school treetop. The looks are severe. The looks are willy-nilly and intent on lighting matches from my earlobes just to brighten their dopey looking glass. All right, so those are a few uh, of the nesters. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, now I'm going to scoot into um, these days of candy and uh, begin with the prologue, which borrows a line from John Yao, who's one of my faves uh, uh, poets. And uh, I have a broadside right, that I keep right by my desk of his work, and it's just amazing. But anyways, I, I used, I used uh, one of his lines. Prologue. Like a fish tinged by the ocean, I walk on sad shoes, weary, wondering land language, wondering demarcation splinter, wondering separation blues, wondering ocean bottom. Like a fish tinged by the ocean, I walk on sad shoes, weary. The day of a stenographer. A stenographer ought to regulate his life. Here is the exact timetable of my daily life. Get up 5.35 a.m., bewildered from 6 a.m. to 11.30 a.m., eat lunch 12 p.m., eat only foods that resemble interplanetary forms wedded in genuflection, examine shadows throughout the day, Carry thermometer and breast pocket that bears all and consumes all. From 1 to 2.25 p.m., subscribe to hundreds of tabloids from around the world and cancel every last one of them 
the very next day. Walk from 2.20 to 3.30 p.m. and daydream a rigorous Bobby Desno's poem while embracing a harrowing fear of all sense of self. My ballpoint is incredibly impressionable. 3.32 to 4.28 p.m. fast and dine on the clarity to which hunger can only give rise. 4.30 to 6.28 p.m. remain intemperate in the halls of memory that thump their sick song while stenographing a fevered description of a sun burnishing the last gasp of day. Eat dinner, standing on one leg. My food must be shelled, reshelled, and shelled again, using everyday household affixers, a process repeated ad nauseum until there is nothing visibly left of the organism but a ball of tape thumbtacks, thread, and various coats of glue. This is a performance of small-scale wreckage. This is an elegy for environmental heartbreak. A stenographer must be a seasoned performance artist. A stenographer must toil without fear regardless of what's at stake. After dinner, another walk. It must never exceed 2,011 steps because the Maya should never be mocked. Read late into the evening something delicious like Aruristas et tu raza. Sleep at an undisclosed time and listen to Satie. Our shadows speak. Our shadows conspire with cathedrals in the sky. Our shadows paint intricate murals with wild hands and glass spinnerets. Our shadows are full-grown water barrels left to fairy tale giants with grass slippers to drink from. The row is a shadow. The shadowed cathedral is a transmutation of early 20th century jazz musicians. Frida is a shadow. When I measured my heart, it weighed 368 kilograms. I stenographed no, but the world did not listen. The cardiologist did not listen. I threatened my pericardium with a hand shovel if it didn't drop weight. By nightfall, I was heartless. By nightfall, I was a shadow's shadow. In my dreams, I stenographed a shaky manifesto of solitude and isolation. The Shadows, Shadows song. Who do you stenograph for? The old stenographer asked the young stenographer. Who do I stenograph for? I stenograph for the public record, the young stenographer responded. Isn't that our purpose? I mean, who do you stenograph for? He asked. I stenograph for God, the old stenographer answered. The young stenographer dropped his shoulders and mumbled something about better to become a poet as he walked away into the night, shaking his head. The stenographer transcribed a wild man with lots of hair who thought writing an entire novel without using the letter E would amuse his future selves. In response, the stenographer laughed at the challenge and stenographed the entire trial without using the letters O and J. Many blamed the release of the defendant on this particularly short-sighted and sloppy artistic constraint. Use your stenography to embody everything you can think of, your Theos urged. He said, even if it's fundamentally wrong, do it, do it, because it's your freedom as a stenographer to do it. But what will people think of me, Theo? People won't think anything of you because your perceptions are shitty and unfathomably opaque. Believe me, mijo, the harm or damage you'd possibly cause is minimal at best. Me, on the other hand, I'm a different story entirely, my boy. In court, the stenographer is an unwavering crime capsule. In court, the stenographer is an oncologist hemorrhaging ears. In court, the stenographer is a rascal satirist bricklaying incendiary counts against the state in the name of stenography.
Thank you. The beginnings of that poem was actually in court. <laughs> it was a couple of days I was in there, you know, and trying to do it in my head, you know. Um, but I was really the beginnings of it, and then just kind of played with it at home, you know. <laughs> Hallelujah, Mama. If you happen to look in the mirror and see a Muppet, Close your eyes and clap your hands as hard as you possibly can. This might very well frighten it away. But if you look in the mirror and still see that Muppet staring back at you, chances are you are a Muppet and that you were always a Muppet. In the mirror, obsess over the dark rings around your Muppet eyes that are a result of the agonizing nights lying in bed awake, contemplating the anonymous Muppet's existence. And the paunch plastered across your midsection now puffed by years of ingesting pints of stout night after night. You've brought to sea to a small town in the middle of the desert where everyone around you takes turns drowning. In the mirror, your Muppet eyes reveal something peculiar, a shortcoming you've never quite observed. The universe is problematic, so you hide. You remain small, hidden and unnoticed like the silver tooth milling in dead Uncle Muppet's mouth. Many close to you have considered you the embodiment of a Muppet severely lacking any recognizable ambitions. So you've endured this life like an unneeded appendage, like a phantom limb. In Muppet High School, you were an outsider who could play a few bars on the trombone. The blues were always your favorite, but the marches aroused too much anxiety. So you set the instrument down and never played again the dirges you so wanted to reclaim. You think of your mother a lot these days. And the hours she spent teaching you prayers devoted to a Muppet God. The calm you felt when you recited the words. The instantaneous peace that washed over your entire being as you both voiced a ribbon of language affirming Muppet peace, Muppet love, Muppet health. You remember your Muppet heart then and the way it filled with a buoyant devotion that made you rise. You often dream of a lamb feeding alone in a vast, empty stadium with a bouquet of geranium sticking out of its ass. Who knows what this means, but it seems fitting for a Muppet's pun at the end of the day. We're all lambs, you say, when we're finally jettisoned from the almighty Muppet industry. Real cheerful stuff, huh? <laughs> God damn, Lopez. <laughs> the onlookers reported. The boy with an apple on his head clutched his stomach, then fell from what seemed like an exhaustion precipitated by hunger. The coroner's official cause of death. No one had ever bothered to tell the boy that there was an apple on top of his head. Pobrecito. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, so I'm going to get into these angel poems. <laughs> Quake. There's a couple of, of epigraphs that I'll, I'll read to. So the first one is, an angel's fall is a direction. Harmony, terrible harmony is only prior. Destiny, Clarice Lispector. And then the second one is The Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes by Elvis Costello. 
The angels of Marlboro Smoke Road emerged from its coral reef like a small, ornate necktie. My neighbor insists these hooligans might very well be members of a 21st century cavalry fixed on intergalactic expansion. The angels are giggling and odorous, so beautiful they reek of mead. Jose's front door was strong-armed by a rambunctious mob of rollerblading angels insistent upon skating unhindered through his living room. You hear them laughing at three o'clock in the morning, threatening cyanide pills stamped with hairy insignias in your morning coffee. The angels have stolen every light bulb in her home, and now she is without light. My heart sank when I discovered angels were filled with helium. Shattered, I shoot away the moon with a tabloid and submerged myself neck deep in its milky lacrimation. The angels have painted their flowered faces obsidian while a telluric hang hunger flashes beneath their tongues. A tobacco-toothed angel scraped its bloody gums with a razor blade. There is an infinite rainforest embroidered on its cape encircled by a microscopic neon peephole. The angels flower-footed all over my favorite kitchen mural. 34,000 angels wheelbarrowed inflation to the marketplace of their duties. When I grow weary, I can no longer resist the temptation to count the missing plates emptied from my cupboards, all because of some drunken angel's fondness for frisbee. In bed, broken verses bleed over my bare feet like the head of a decapitated carousel horse planted by two-bit cinema gangsters. Pretending to sleep, I relish the news of a new rising lord intent on withdrawing its troops. Actually, before I get to the next angel poem, I'm going to read a little love poem. It's called The Yearning Feed. And it says, If you were a motion detector, I'd buy inertia a one-way ticket to Mars so I could dance all night long in your arms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, the next one I'm going to read is The Boo Report. And, and the title actually comes from a, a piece by Asco, the great art collective out of East L.A., um, and then it also borrows a, a line from Frank Lima, one of my favorite poets. The angels have learned my name. At exactly 3 a.m. they call Prospero, Prospero from my balcony while pissing on my neighbor's plants. Their knees are dirty and their cheeks are smudged with earth. One grooms his mustache like Dali. Another is a tattoo artist and has imprisoned my cat. The angels have hired a private eye who rubs his crotch whenever I swipe my credit card. Their demands are hardly reasonable. How should I believe when the angels wear overalls and leer at my ugly feet? The angels who have stolen my identity and have bought three fenders and a Marshall stack from Guitar Center. Angels who cannot stop playing power chords. Their 90s grunge covers outrage my neighbors. My heart is heavy. But they do, not, they do not seem to care. My poems have holes in them because the angels carry shovels in their hands and dig up my metaphors that are the size of embryonic stem cells. Poems that were already emphysemic. Did Rilke have to contend with this? <laughs> Heart crane. The angels are God's hit squad. 
The weather changes so frequently in my home these days. The news channel features my living room and there are no commercial breaks. The angels like it that way because they have stopped wearing their wings. Okay. Actually, I think I'm going to finish with this one. It's kind of longer, but... Actually, I'm going to read another love poem. Okay. (laughs) Poem. To miss you is to look through a taco shop window hungry. (laughs) Hair uncombed. Pockets empty. Except for the old theater ticket I saved to remember the first movie we watched together that you stayed awake the whole way through. (laughs) All right. I can't find my stuff here, man. <laughs> Dang. Usually it's like, bam, I got it. Okay. So I'm going to end with this joint right here called the lecture. <laughs> Pops warned. Boy, you better be careful, cabron. While you read those books, You're letting people you would never talk to seep into your head. People you wouldn't even offer to feed if they were dying at your feet and you had a dozen tamales in your backpack. People you wouldn't even talk to at your own mother's funeral. Not people, mijo, but savages. You hear me? Savages, mijo, savages. Ratones that have done nothing but write meaningless books, mijo, ratones. Chupacabras that chew on Catholic children in their sleep, mijo, chupacabras. You don't want these people in your life now, do you? No, I knew you wouldn't. So don't be dumb and let them into your mind. And worse still, don't let them climb into your heart. If you keep reading those Nietzsche's who sing like devils in the face of God, who claim things like all good things approach their goal crookedly, imaginate, we're doomed, mijo. We're doomed if this is the path you take. And if you do, you can let those scumbags into our home is what you'll do. Our churches, our birthday parties, our Christmas mornings, our schools, naked in our showers, they'll be los cochinos. You'll invite them to our funerals, the hospitals where we carport our dying. They'll be there where your grandfather will someday fight so hard to live. They'll be there stopping that little machine that goes beep, 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 así. Beep, 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 así. They'll slow it down, so slow, squashing the life out that poor machine that's had our family running like rats on a wheel for years to keep it working, which is a metaphor, cabron, but still painful the same. And it'll break my heart when he goes to that place I don't even want to think about, but it will be your fault in all those writers you read, taking turns, never having worked a day in their lives, sitting there on top of my father's machine, squashing your grandfather's old lungs into dust, los cabrones, before I'll be able to say I'm sorry to my dad to apologize to him for all of the horrific shit I've done in my life. And they'll hide in the beers I'll drink and make me get drunk too fast and do stupid shit. Your mom getting all mad at me when I make scenes in front of her friends, hitting on them, calling them names. They'll influence our home. They'll put a dark cloud over our house as big and fat as a pregnant cow full of rotten milk. Those bastards, William Burroughs, Jean Genet, Celine, George Orwell, Henry, Henry Miller. What kind of names are those? You're inviting evil into our home. You're letting these evil-thinking men into our Catholic home. My chanclas will always be missing. Our bills will go unpaid. And your mother will blame me. 
our electricity flickering down to its last speck of light each month while your mom begs the electric company to give her another chance because she has kids that need to see to do their homework and she'll blame me, angry, embarrassed, sad woman, your mother. All of this will be your fault because you brought those disgusting dogs into our lives with their tales of sex, their alcohol and drugs. You brought them to us because whatever you read, mijito, we learn by your actions. You begin to say things that you would have never said before. You'll see the world differently. Your perception is wild and powerful as Cezanne's and like a corncob pipe Rambo, you'll eat your teacher's skulls out with a spoon sized for caviar. You'll behave as if you were never raised by a respectable mother and father. Your head will be in the clouds thinking smart-ass things. You'll think you're better than everyone else. When you're not, no one will understand you. Everyone will think you're crazy when you walk around town with worn-out books in your back pocket wearing socks with holes in them, dirty calzones, and talking to yourself. Even though you hear Beethoven and Mahler in your head and not that radio shit everyone listens to, you won't even have a job, cabron. Be because you know a few poems by memory, you'll think you know, but you won't. You won't know because you're just a little punk. How can Schopenhauer save us, cabron? How? Answer me. How? So remember, each time you read those so-called books of so-called literature, remember the kids around this town. Remember your family, your mother. Remember your religion. Eres mexicano y eres católico, cabron. And don't forget that. Remember your father imprisoned here by domesticity while Gregory Corso was in Greece when years younger than I. Remember, remember that I haven't left this place, not once to even venture over that hill that eats up the sunset each night as if to mock me. Recuérdate que hay un shared consciousness in this community. And if you don't know what shared consciousness means, go back to the eastern section in the library, the section you should be reading. We're all part of the same piece of mierda, cabrón. So why waste your time with books like those when you have a storyteller like me at home? Now go on. Now go on and tell your mom that I'm speaking iambic and that I'm feeling horny tonight. Go on before it's too late. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, I catch my breath. <laughs> I really, really liked your um, whole reading, but the reading of Nestor captivated me as an opener. Uh And I'm just wondering, what was the inspiration for Nestor? Because the whole sequence was very psychedelic. There was a lot of wordplay, a lot of juxtaposition of Mm -hmm. images. And like I said, it was just very captivating. So I'm curious. Yeah, thank you. Um, That began just with this... A lot of my work is character-driven. You know, at the end of the day, and, and Esther was just this, this character that, that kept reoccurring in some of some short stories that I was writing, and then um, it just uh, I just kind of let it go where it, where it wanted to go, and there's about maybe like five or six other ones that are part of this this uh, sequence, I guess you can call it, but um, it's this character that has the wisdom that's crazy, not crazy, but just kind of crazy wisdom, you know, and. Uh, um, makes these appearances throughout um, the narrator's sort of day-to-day, you know, experiences. Um, 
But as far as the writing of them, it, it, I just tend to let things kind of unfold for themselves and, and try not to pull any sort of or put any sort of restrictions in ter- terms of a narrative structure of any kind. I just kind of deal with that later on, you know. Um, but uh, thank you very much for, for saying that, uh, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, I have a question on humor and its a place in your poetry because there's a lot of dark humor but there's also humor in beautiful scenes mm-hmm. and whether you when you uh, the humor comes from when you're writing or do you, when you see yourself reading this will be kind of funny I, I tend to live in that space between, uh, you know, dark comedy and, and intermixed with agony. <laughs> That's my daily experience, people. No, <laughs> um, no uh, but I think it's a very powerful tension that can come of it. Not to say that I do it well or whatever, but I just, that's something that it interests me, the different, you know, third spaces that come from that. Um, but as far as the, I, I never tend to write anything that, that I that I hope will you know get some laughs and and that's that's not what it's about. It's just I kind of let the work unfold, like I said earlier, and and you know if I can make my laugh myself laugh while I'm writing, that's that's always a good thing, you know. Um, but there's a number of writers that you know that I've read that that, that I try to kind of get to um, to kind of think about how they're doing that and how they're approaching it. I was reading uh what's that? Henri Michaud, Michaud uh, recently, and I was like, wow, this dude is a trip, you know? <laughs> um, those plume pieces, you know, I think a, a new collection of them came out recently. Um, but, yeah, that, that intermixture of, of humor and sadness, I think, is something that's, that interests me. Mm-hmm. I think com- comedy and, and humor is a, is pretty potent, you know, you know, if if so I try. <laughs> if you could go back to your high school self and tell the youth of, of El Centro specifically or the whole Imperial Valley something empowering to maybe um, get them out of that dark despair moment, what would what would you say briefly? Because I know you could go on about this for a long time, but I'd love to hear no pressure. <laughs> um, what I would say, so the question is what I would say to, to high school students in the Valley specifically. Um, I would say just to, I mean, and this is things that we always hear all the time, but uh, just follow that. Follow your passion. I mean, that sounds cliche and everything to say, but just keep doing it. You know, um, because I, I had a tough time in, in high school the latter part, I started, you know, just getting really distracted with things and, you know, how it goes sometimes. And, um, but I had some teachers, I had two teachers, I had a jazz um, music teacher, Jimmy Cannon, who I will forever hold at the highest levels, you know. Um, and then I had Carmel Keene, who was a creative writing teacher at the time. And this was a time when I was missing like 43 classes in a semester, you know. Um, but they pulled me in, and they realized that this was something, you know, that I was into. 
I mean, I, f- I heard Miles Davis's Bitches Brew in his class. I remember, I remember, actually remember the day when Miles Davis died. He put out all Miles Davis's records out, and we listened to the music, and no one said anything. You had 25, 30 uh, juniors in high school, seniors in high school, not say a word for a whole hour or whatever as we took in that music. Um, this man had a tremendous amount of respect, and I always wanted to make him, you know, proud. Um, and then creative writing class was somewhere where I kind of let myself go, you know, and, and do my thing. And it came to a point in junior, I think it was junior, or senior year, senior year, where those classes were offered at the same time. So they basically told me, you need to choose one or the other. And I went into my teacher's uh, classrooms and I said, you know, what? this is my situation. It's the only thing that I care about right now. By that time, I was a baseball player. I didn't even care about baseball, you know. And they really went up to bat for me. You know, they they uh, they went up to the administrators and said, we're going to let's get creative with this kid, you know. This could be something that saves his ass, you know. <laughs> and they worked out an agreement where I would go half the time in creative writing and then half the time in jazz band. And, you know, there's a certain amount of seat time you got to think about. You know, there's all that red tape, right? And at first they didn't want to let it happen, but they were persistent and they believed and that resonated with me, you know? So I think it's just being there, be the one who, who notices, you know, um, and be there for that student that, that, uh, that may be looking, you know what I mean? I've taught, I taught high school for about 15 years. Yeah, amazing, amazing students. Thank you for that question. I got really... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic that you're here to talk to us at all. Thank you. But really interesting that you're here this week. Uh-huh. Because what happened in our class for the introduction poetry, we're discussing poets who comment on other writings of other poets in their own work. And you mentioned that you had a couple lines and you brought them up in your work that you built off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, my question as a student is where is that line between respectfully sampling a line or a meter versus to keep it in a university context plagiarism of yeah. doing it too too much yeah I mean I don't see a line <laughs> 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 to be honest with you. no 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 okay <laughs> I think if you think about you know what's your purpose you know uh, what's the purpose what's the effect you're trying to create you know um, is this tribute is this homage is this some sort of like intervention is it you know you gotta ask all these different questions and, and then go with it um, the what the last bit of work I've done a, a lot of it is lifted you know but I think it's really cool to to put to sample these these uh, different works and see what happens with them. Um, I mean, as far as plagiarism, I don't you know I don't really I, you know obviously there's a mad respect you know for for the authors and, and that type of thing. I'm not making tons of money or anything, but but um, I mean you, you just got to be you got to think of your purpose and what it is. I mean that's my position on it, um, and I try to see what other people have done in relation to that sort of aesthetic or something, you know.
much for coming to read here. Um, I'm curious about your poem about the stenographer and your thoughts on writing as pleasure and writing as torture. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of both. I, I kind of love this torture. <laughs> um, writing as pleasure and writing as torture. Yeah. It's something that I do. I do it obsessively, you know. Um, I, I still leave little little pieces of paper all over the house, trails of them, you know, little notes here and there. Um, it's just something that I love to do, you know, and, and it goes back to those days. And even younger than the high school, you know, when I was a kid, I used to get these, these old, you know, even Seuss books, you know, and then I'd change the plot lines, make them dirty. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I'd get them into that. But uh, it's just something that, that, that I find entertaining. It's a place to go for me where, where no one else is allowed, you know, until maybe later. Um, but it's something that I enjoy doing. Um, if I didn't, if I didn't enjoy it, if I considered it really torture, I probably, I wouldn't do it. You know, it, it's work. It's, it's, it's hard work, you know, when you're revising and doing those things. And you got to show up as much as you can, you know, um, to be there. For the work, um, but it's enjoyable for me. I love it. Mm -hmm. Hi, Paul. Thanks Hi. so much for the reading. It was amazing. Um, Thank you. Uh, I want to build off the Silas question about uh -huh. the sonographer because, and maybe approach it in a different way. It mm -hmm. seems like the sonographer and even the lecture, like I feel like there's a kind of um, writing and it's recording, mm -hmm. kind of building off your um, your point about music and creative writing. It seems like your ear is so tuned. Chanclas. <laughs> you know, it's not a word I grew up with. Yeah. But when I heard him read that, it, it was like, boom, you know, mm -hmm. I heard it uh, renewed, you know, in some ways. I was wondering about, like, if there was anything in your education that gave you uh, the permission, mm -hmm. um, or if there was a way that it kind of turned on um, some of these uh, words you grew up with, um, mm -hmm. you know, to, to be able to write about family, you know, sometimes some students yeah um so as as far as the auditory uh again it comes with music and the love for music and um i i think i he, i can hear something and really remember it you know uh, I guess an auditory learner, I guess you would say. Um, so that's very, I'm very sensitive to that, you know. Uh, I listen to cadences and speech. I listen to, you know, uh, different sorts of things and the way language plays and, 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 and it's sonics, right? Um, I think I could mimic pretty okay. <laughs> um, as far as writing about family, oftentimes those are composites of multiple people. Um, there's been a couple of times when I've been more, more autobiographical than other times. But for the most part, it's usually a, 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 a 
grouping of, of different people that I know um, and borrowing, you know, from from them. Mm. And it may be even someone on t- television or something. You know, it's just not necessarily people that I know. Um, but I think for me, everything's at my disposal. You know, I'm gonna if if it sounds right, if it fits right, I'm gonna try to use it somehow. You know, um, and then as far as the the language and rhythms, and you know, when I read, uh, I talked about Juan Felipe Herrera, who was definitely someone who who inspired me early on, but also Paul Beatty's book White Boy Shuffle, which came out in the '90s. Um, what he was doing was just incredible, you know. And if you talk about humor and and satire and, and all of those things, that that's a great book. And I remember it just totally impacted me at the time. You know, and then the, the hip hop, you know, rhythms and things like that, and the sampling, and the, you know, the different textures that that created, and that that's always stayed with me since then, since my first reading of his work. Um, so that's that's I guess that's where where it comes from. Again, music is very important to me. When I'm writing, I try to. I, there's always music on in the house, you know. But I, I'm sure it's the same for a lot of you, you know. Um, but that's where it comes from. You know, like Miles Davis used to say about Tony Williams, the drummer, you know, that when he was a young drummer, he was a teenager still when Miles Davis asked him to play in his band. And he said, that kid is something else. He goes, he could see somebody trip and he'll incorporate that rhythm somehow into his, to his set, you know. And it's just always trying to be present, you know, for those types of things, you know. And yeah, I hope that answered him. And as far as chanclas, you know, you always got to have a chancla. You know, know, those things are so versatile. I'm sure there are, but there's a reason why I'm probably suppressing them, you know. So they haven't emerged yet. <laughs> um, I'm not trying to be mysterious or anything, <laughs> or like totally deep. But it's just, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's that type of thing. I, I, I want to work on something to honor my grandparents, though, for sure. And the, the form, I still haven't really thought about. Maybe I want it, it'd be some sort of nonfiction or something. That, I want to do with that, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your reading. That was like awesome. Thank but, you. Um, if you don't mind sharing, could you speak a little bit about your time at UCSD? Like, first of all, why? And <laughs> <laughs> Okay, where do I begin? Um, it's a serious place. <laughs> um, actually, came I came here as a psychology major, and I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And I was up there at Peterson Hall for most of the time, and around I was at Thurgood Marshall. Um, and I, I mean, I, I enjoy it and stuff. But then I I I, uh, I ended up. Moonlighting in the lit department, 
one of my roommates says, yo, I'm going to take an introduction to poetry class. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. I like reading, I like writing. <laughs> so I'll do it. So I, I, I went that first day, and then we all waited. It was a large class. And then in came in um, the professor, and he had this shirt with Miles Davis on his chest. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> you know? And it turns out it was Quincy Troop, you know, who worked with Miles Davis for his, his memoir, his autobiography, which is a book that I had on an extended loan from the Central Public Library when I was in like seventh and eighth grade. And it was just this weird, I was like, I know that name, I know that name, I know that name. And then boom, it hit me who it was. And um, I think that's, and that's where we, we read that Before Columbus Foundation anthology. And that's where I found Juan Felipe Herrera, among many other amazing writers. And that's where it happened. And that's where it started. I, I didn't do a minor or anything like that. I was just, I took a few more classes with him. Um, but that was an amazing experience. And, and while I was here, I tried... I don't know why, but I was going to all these different sorts of lectures and things like that. The uh, lecture about the eyeball, you know, <laughs> you know, in the med school, you know, I was, I was doing these, you know, I was just trying to expose myself to different things and 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 take it in somehow, you know. And I, I, I guess, I guess, you know, of course, there were some things that I, I disliked at the, at that time, but overall, I think it was a really cool experience. As I was work, when I was working at that time, I was working in physical plant services, so I was. Um, cutting lawns at Muir, and then I, uh, I did a lot of the irrigation stuff around time, around the, the campus. I'd get up, you know, be there at 6 o'clock in the morning and work till about 2. Um, but what was cool about it was that I was outside, and pretty, pretty much everyone left me alone as long as I was, you know, doing the work, and I was listening to music the whole time, just letting my head just go off, you know, and, and get through my days like that, you know. Um, and then I'd go to classes and sometimes I'd fall asleep, but just tired, but you know, um, but overall I, th I thought it was a, a, a cool experience. Okay. <laughs> uh, hi. Um, hi. Thank you so much for speaking to your work. I was going to ask a question about censorship. Uh -huh. In terms of censoring, mm, well, I mean, if, if there's been something that I thought was going to affect somebody negatively that I really care about, and then there's really, I, you know, it's again, it goes back to purpose. And what is this, you know? Um, and if there's anything, a serious issue that I'm working with or interrogating, I, I try to do it from a, a lens of compassion as much as I can, right? Um, so if, if there's anything sense, I, I kind of like, I'll wait on it for a while and think, think it through a little bit, you know, because I have written some things that have pissed people off, you know, and uh, it wasn't intentional, but I could now see where they are coming from. Um, so that's another thing, you got to own that responsibility, you know, as the writer. Check yourself, ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing, you know, if it's, if it's venomous, if it's, you want to present Project poison or medicine, you know, you gotta ask yourself that. You know. Cool. 
Good. Yeah, I mean, it comes out through the revision process, but it's it's not to make it more palatable, or or you know what I mean. It's it's uh, this is a, I'm generally a pretty quiet person, you know, shyness and all that, you know, as a kid. But you know, when when I'm tapping that keyboard, shit, <laughs> you know, you know, there was that one uh, I forgot who it was, an old time playwright, but he they, he. He he was recorded as saying, you know, when he get pissed off at somebody, he'd say, "I'll see you in my next play." You know, he. <laughs> but it's never like that. I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> but it's a place where where you gotta you gotta be able to feel that you can fly. You know what I mean? You know. So. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.